Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant, Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change Podcast. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said you I didn't have much to go yet. on at that point in my life, but I know that I knew that my mom was an otherworldly type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been and waiting for this I senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like being in public service and being a politician. I have less privacy than I When my mom started working from home, I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't there, but But she when we bring everyone to the table, it's beautiful and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode takes us inside the world of youth and young adult mental health, and it could not be more urgent. It features the state change stories of three Vermont college students, Gray Grossclose of Saratoga, New York, Rob Amba from a suburb of Manila in the Philippines, and Mars Etgu from Istanbul, Turkey. These students just spent an entire summer working with us on youth and young adult mental health innovation research here at State Change Media, and they attend my alma mater, Middlebury College, which is a small elite liberal arts college here in Vermont that attracts the best and brightest students from around the globe for a very rigorous education in a beautiful Vermont setting. Today you will hear in detail what being a matriculating college student in the COVID era has actually been like for three young people from very different parts of the world. You'll hear about the impact the pandemic and complex societal issues rippling out from it have had, not just on their personal experience in mental health, but on the core activities, experiences, and realities of daily life for college students in 2023. As you're about to hear, today's college students are having a very different campus life and educational experience than most of us adults imagine they're having. I've specialized in teen and young adult mental health and neurodevelopment for more than 20 years, and this summer even I was shocked by the scope of difference between what campus life and higher education have been like in recent years versus what I imagined it was like. Listeners who are adults and do not work with 18 to 25-year-olds regularly, I implore you to listen closely today and learn more about the lives of COVID-era college students and young adults and about the complexities and challenges facing higher education in the years since the pandemic reconfigured everything in these students' lives and on all college campuses overnight. It's truly a whole new world. So I was part of the unfortunate class that graduated during the pandemic. So March of my senior year of high school, the whole world shut down and we had to finish our last three months of school in high school, totally online. We had everything canceled. We didn't have a graduation in person. We didn't have a prom. We didn't have anything that like you would expect of a proper high school senior experience. And then that transitioned into the summer, I historically had worked at a summer camp over the summer and all of that got shut down. There wasn't much to do. I stayed at home, worked at a restaurant three days a week whenever I could, and then ended up at Middlebury in September of 2021 it was. Yeah. So a year, like the, the fall after you spent a year living at home, is that correct? It was the spring and the summer and then into that fall, started at mid. Okay. So I know you're from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Saratoga Springs. Right. I think that comes into play. This is the story that you're telling me sounds like the story of a lot of American college students from the Northeast that I know. 
um, as a person living here in Vermont, who had uh, sort of this this question mark of, will I be going to campus in the fall? How did you and your family think about and sort uh, going off to college in the middle of this really overwhelming public health crisis? Yeah. For me, more than anything, I just wanted to change. Being at home for so long, having spent all of high school and then the period of my life where I was finally expecting to gain more independence, having that all shut off and be so stuck at home really was very frustrating. And in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best decision because there wasn't much going on on campus. But more than anything in that moment, I just wanted to get away from my parents in like the best way possible, just have my own independence, live by myself, have that college experience that I had expected to have for so long. And it wasn't so much of a, a pull from college as it was a, a push away from home and just a, a change out of what had been like the new normal during the COVID pandemic. I think definitely a wide majority of my friends left and then went to college during the pandemic. I think for, for similar reasons of just wanting to get out and wanting to leave and wanting to adventure and feel a sense of like being on a campus with a lot of young people rather than in residential neighborhoods and in a city where nothing's really happening all the time. Yeah, but also a lot of people decided what college they were going to during the pandemic. People were getting acceptance letters and like making those big decisions in April, May of 2020. During the lockdown. Exactly. Oh, God, I didn't realize. I didn't even think of that. You're right. As the, yeah. as we're watching the news and the numbers rise and yeah. that things shut down, that the acceptance letters themselves are showing up. Yeah, I committed to Middlebury in May of 2020 after being inside for like two months. When you were sorting that during the, the, still the very, you know, intense lockdown period of the pandemic, what were the schools telling parents and families and students about COVID and what to expect yeah, the school, the school definitely talked about it to prospective families, but it was more an insurance that everything was going to be back to normal. The, the overall message they gave was like, to the best of their ability, they would have as normal of a semester and a college experience in the fall and kind of gave these, they didn't promise anything, but it was these like open blanket statements of like, we're going to do what we can to get things back to normal, like don't worry, like everything's going to be to the best of our ability. And I actually think it wasn't just schools saying this. I think that was a prevailing thought, you know, workplaces that had people sent home working remotely were thinking, we'll all be back in the office in the fall. I think schools probably were maybe being a little aspirational, but also were not alone yeah. in thinking that somehow this would normalize. And a lot of people were thinking it was a, a seasonal thing. And during the summer, as everybody's outside and all this the pandemic would die down and everything would be fine in the next year. So more than anything, it wasn't on my mind as much as it should have been in hindsight, for sure. When you arrived at campus, you're a new first-year student. What was it like in the context of COVID-19? It was two weeks until classes started. So it was like this campus-wide bubble that we had to sit in. And until you got your... PCR test back as you arrived, you had to stay in your room. And it would take a day or two to actually process. Like it was a pretty expedited system, but still it took like a day or two of you and your roommate who you had never met before sitting in like a 150 square foot room with just the two of you. Moving all your stuff in, like kind of getting to know each other, um, but you weren't allowed to leave your room. I remember that very first night I stepped outside and like talked to the kid who lived next door and our RA came out and like he understood the situation and he like felt bad. But he was like, sorry, guys, like you have to be alone and isolated in your rooms. How were things like food and bathrooms and showers for the first, in those day, first couple of days? Yeah, everything was delivered. You'd get a knock on your door and there'd be like two little to go containers outside. You could use the bathrooms, but had to wear masks in the hallway up until you like actually had to brush your teeth or get in the shower. You had to wear a mask, which is, you know, pretty normal for that entire year still. So 
you're a new college student, a new state, new community. You are not only not meeting people, but you're not learning your way around. You're not learning anything about <laughs> about the community because you're literally in, in your room. Yeah. And was there any situation set up between roommates about like how to be, you know, first of all, safe and make sure you don't give each other COVID? Probably that was a risk. Uh, yeah. The school made everybody do their own personal like two week quarantine before even coming to campus and doing that two day quarantine and like the two week long bubble. So it was kind of everybody's under the assumption that we hadn't gone out and done anything super risky and just been with our family units for the past two weeks. So in terms of like health safety and like not spreading COVID, everybody was, you know, pretty, pretty tame and pretty okay with that. After that initial quarantine and everyone is tested, clear of COVID, and classes begin, what was life like on campus that semester? Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was slow. It was weird. Um, it takes a little bit to like get myself back into that mindset because it's a time in my life where I don't, I don't have many fond memories. I don't really have many particular like novel memories anyway, so it's hard to like remember a whole bunch but I just remember like a, a massive feeling of isolation and being physically removed into a separate part of campus because the way that the campus worked was if you were in these dorms you had to eat at these dining halls and if you were sure, in these doors so you have to sort of to create some exactly. pods so I only in terms of socialization, really got to meet like the people on my floor. It was an all guys floor, about 15 of us. And I guess we got fairly close, but it was also really, really hard to find a place to even like gather and like have like a proper conversation with a large group. All of your classes were online, I assume at this time. Well, all my classes had an in-person component. Okay. So that was one of the biggest promises that the school gave to us when we came in was, hey, like, it won't be that bad. We're not going to be completely remote, which was true. And they stuck to that. But for instance, like my intro psychology class that I took at the school was like three or four hours of like asynchronous lecture material online. And then we meet up for our discussion section on Friday. I didn't really get to know my professor. I didn't get to know like the people in my classes. Yeah, it was just hard. It was just really hard. You remember the days of walking around, not being able to see people's faces. I do. Tough. And I also can't help but reflect that listeners who are older than you, so most adults walking around out here, uh, who've been to college are hearing this and it really is shocking and jars up against our own mental image of what first semester of college is like for all kinds of different students. You know, not all young adults have the same experience, but certainly there are some universal truths to those first semesters. And one of them is that people report it feeling very alive, very social, very vital, and s sort of like a buffet of experiences <laughs> that made things feel much bigger and more expansive than their life back home. So clearly this stands out as just a jarring, austere very isolating experience. Yeah, definitely. So Mars, you came to Middlebury just this past year. You were still a high school student back in your hometown, back in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, when the pandemic began. And for the first, what, two years of it. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So the pandemic began when I was in my sophomore year of high school. And it essentially went on until I graduated. So tell me about life just before COVID-19 as a student in Turkey. What were you thinking the next couple of years of transitioning to college were going to look like? And then what happened when the pandemic arrived? 
So just before, it looked like I was going to do the international baccalaureate program, which is and was advertised to be at the time very challenging and already sort of like a heavy task to take on. And when we got news of the pandemic actually being a threat sort of to education and like our normal lives, it made things so much scarier because we were essentially going in blind with like starting a new uh, sort of accelerated college level program from scratch from like our bedrooms. See, you remember learning, okay, I guess I go to school through my computer from home now. And in Turkey, was the messaging that this is going to go on a long time or was it sort of like here in the United States, this is going to be over soon? For the first like month or so, I think everyone expected it to be back like by fall or something. But as things went on, as the sort of like counts kept rising, everyone realized like this isn't going to be fixed as soon as we thought it would be. I was lucky enough to have my school be like pretty proficient with tech already. So the transition wasn't as hard as it would be for like other schools. But it was still definitely like a decline in the quality of education and in the quality of my experience in general. I feel like for me, the biggest uh, sort of loss from COVID was not having the social environment of the school. Because especially like going into a challenging program, it it was more of a blow than it would have been to not have that kind of social support and like seeing classmates struggle with me, uh, being able to talk to people about things. It was a very isolating experience of like, stay in your bedroom, join Google Meet classes. Uh, sometimes don't, don't even like turn your camera on if the teacher doesn't require it. It was weird not seeing anyone, not talking to many people outside of class and sort of losing that whole part of it. Like, I know people formed sort of like group chats and places to sort of seek that social support, but it was harder because I was already kind of an outsider in the school. So it was harder to sort of reintegrate into the social system and like seek those out rather than have them be available to me like straight out of class. How did you spend your time when you weren't studying or doing schoolwork? A lot of screen usage, as you can <laughs> guess. I was lucky to have friends in the neighborhood that I could like meet up with semi-regularly. So that was one way we like kept each other sane. But yeah, just an increasing amount of time was spent just on TikTok, on Instagram, in my bedroom. And in the living room at most, like that was the most I would usually go. And what impact did that have? Did you notice a shift in your health, your anxiety, things like that? For sure. It was, I dealt with like sort of mental health struggles before the COVID pandemic, but it definitely derailed my sort of mental recovery to be shut in and isolated like that and sort of be constantly using like screens as social interaction rather than going outside and doing things. And I didn't actually connect the dots that like being cut off from the world was what was making my mental health suffer that much. someone who studies the science, I knew that this prolonged isolation was particularly sort of neurotoxic to people between the ages of about 14 and 24, 25, because you're at a time in your life when you're sort of designed to be very motivated by being out, having novel experiences, learning new things, socializing, et cetera. So um, you were not alone in that experience. Uh, nor are you alone in having that experience, but not necessarily knowing why, what part of it you could even shift or 
um, that it was such a recipe for a hard time. How long did that period of time go on when you had to be home? Did you ever return to school? It was uh, pretty much continuous for like a year, a year and a half. And after that, they tried calling us back to school and like the government opened up businesses and tried to get things back to normal. But sort of in line with what happened in the U.S., it kept being closed down and then back up again, and then the numbers would rise and then close down. So it was pretty, I would say that was almost harder because there was no like established way of doing things. And every time we were sort of hopeful that things would return back to normal, they just kept like continuing the cycle. So in that environment, how did you approach thinking about going to college and sorting where to go, what the right plan was, et cetera? College was pretty much what everyone worried about in my junior and senior years, uh, especially since it was just like academics was the only thing left to obsess over. So you were either thinking about that or not doing much work at all. And I, I was like increasingly frustrated and stressed and like hopeless about college. Uh, for a period of time, I was like so sure that like I'm not going to get in anywhere because I'm struggling so much. I can't even keep up with my assignments. Who would even accept me? So it was sort of tying into the isolation piece. Like, I didn't know how everyone else was doing. So I thought, like, I was the problem and that I wouldn't really have anything to show for my, like, COVID years and then fall behind. didn't yet have an understanding that so many people in your exact shoes were struggling with that same sort of just thinking maybe they're not handling it or they're not quite feeling as productive or effective at school and and all of that. But... I can tell you as a therapist for high school and college students at that time, it was every single person <laughs> feeling really stressed and perplexed by the, their, any academic struggles they had, mood difficulties, all of that stuff, and really worried about the implications of that. Like, does this mean I'm going to struggle and not get into college? And like, is this going to screw up my future? Right. So that sounds like a really hard time. And how did, you, how did you make the choice to come to the United States, to Vermont, to Middlebury College? Um, I knew I was going to apply to college abroad. And in terms of like the system, Canada and the U.S. made most sense to me. My options were either not applying at all or applying to as much, like as many colleges as I can. So I ended up sending out 25 applications, I think. And one of them was Middlebury, and it was a impulsive sort of application. And when it came back in acceptance, I was, that's when I actually ended up doing a lot of my research and deciding, like, maybe something away from the business of the city and stuff would be nice. Because I wanted the sort of routine, not much, like, going on, not many fluctuations, away from noise, away from, like, crowds. So that aspect and the sort of quaint small town feel was like evident from the first few days. And I fell in love with it at that point, which my opinions of it did change a bit later on, but it was definitely a much needed change at that moment. So this was fall of 2022, two years after Gray came to campus in that, you know, multiple weeks of quarantine and stay in your room pretty intense bubble. Did the campus look changed by COVID or did it sort of look and feel more like a typical pre-COVID college campus two years later? I think more or less it was like pre-COVID looking, but I didn't actually know how it looked before COVID and like talking to upperclassmen and learning about how things used to be before that made me realize that they did actually make significant changes. 
we had to wear masks in some places and we had to like test uh, when we first arrived on campus and if we were feeling sick. But it wasn't that different from a normal college experience, I think. So for you thinking about the beginning of the pandemic to today, you know, you're a rising sophomore. Where do you see the the biggest points of impact in terms of what really has looked and been meaningfully different because of COVID-19? I feel like it's harder for people to adjust socially. Like after being told to stay inside all the time, I was like, I need to go out there. I need to actually do things, meet up with people. And it made me want to be more social. But at the same time, it meant that I sort of lacked that developmental moment. So it was harder to sort of get back in the scene. And I feel like a lot of people do echo that sentiment. Just feeling a little sort of lagged or I know that adults in middle age, we just sort of feel awkward. (laughs) We sort of feel like we used to have good social skills, right? But like it's a little harder now or it's been an adjustment. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it was definitely an adjustment going from almost no social social contact to being in a college environment and having tons of new people to meet and new people to talk to. Rob, you're also a rising sophomore who just finished your first year as an international student at Middlebury. And you're originally from the Philippines, which is where you were attending high school when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, right? You live just outside of Manila. Tell us a little bit about what your life looked like just before the pandemic. Well, at that time, I was still in junior year, like immediately before the pandemic started. So we have the same calendar as the U.S. So we started like in August and I was entering my junior year and it was pretty busy because in our school, like junior year was kind of the year where you worked really hard because that's where all the major requirements were. That's where you, we did our like high school thesis. So it was really intense. And I was definitely like at like 90% constantly that year, as was everyone else. So it was pretty busy. Were you already thinking about going to school in the United States? At that time, not at all. So no one really thought of going abroad because it just didn't make sense financially. And that included me. What did you think your future looked like? Well, I was just going to attend the university that our school was in because it's free. So it really only started when I had free time, which was the pandemic. So how did you learn about the pandemic and what was happening and what was that like when it came to the Philippines? It was honestly really crazy because, you know, geographically we're near China. So a lot of the news you'd get directly from China and it caused a lot of buzz in Southeast Asia in general. I remember in early, like late February, early March, the virus was already going around a bit January, I think in China and a few places abroad. And we'd get like these rumors, these reports online on social media, unofficial and sometimes unverified. Like we'd be scared, but we didn't really know what to do with it. Sounds like a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. So information moving around, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really clear what's actually mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. So then I remember the day that everything like completely locked down. It was March 15 and it was a pretty crazy story because I was in the financial business district of Manila for my thesis because my sample was um, bank employees. So I was running around banks giving surveys. And then we were calling a contact that we had in the city right beside it because there's like twin financial districts right beside each other. I was calling him and asking him like, oh, we're already here at your office. And he said he's at the other city and he's going to be back. And we said, like, okay, we'll just wait here. But then we receive a call later, and then he's like, oh, they're locking down this district because there's a whole office that apparently has, um, that tested positive. 
So he couldn't get out because they were locking the area. And we were like, oh, we're like super near. It's like 10 minutes away. And then we hear that it's like the city that we were in was also locking down. So we had to rush home. It was a pretty crazy experience. That sounds really frightening. Yeah. Like there was sort of a real time, almost like a movie, right? Where yeah. we have to get home because this threat is really close in our community. Yeah. How did it feel in your household? Like what was it like at home? Who was there? And what, what was the uh, dynamic in those early first few days and weeks? It was really strange because a lot of like, I have three, I have two sisters and my parents, obviously. And so there was like five people in our house and we never really hanged out much because we were all, we all had, like, we all had school, our parents had work. So really our only time of interaction would be, we'd go home, we'd be fetched by my dad who has a car and we'd all drive home, eat dinner, then that's it. Like you go to your own room to do your homework and stuff. So we never had like kind of bonding time. And that was those first few weeks, my dad my dad teaches in the university where my school is, and they had cut all classes. They said it'll be two weeks, like, oh, we'll be back in two weeks, as you know, they said everywhere in the world. But So he had nothing to do, so he was at home all the time. And my mom couldn't open her dental clinic because she's a dentist, and we own a small dental clinic. So we were really all home, and it was confusing because we've never spent this much time together. So we were still trying to work out, like, oh, who is this person actually, aside from the few interactions that we've had day-to-day -day back before the pandemic? I think a lot of families found themselves in the same situation of suddenly spending an enormous amount of time together without the normal rhythms of daily life and the normal things to keep us busy. And uh, it was a big, you know, for better, for worse, <laughs> intense family uh, shift and learning experience. Tell me a bit about how you started thinking about this might go on for some time and impact my education and my future? Well, school was completely cut. So starting from March, we always thought, oh, we just have to, we're just going to wait it out and come back when they say we should. But it never really happened. So we were just really lounging around. And that was really hard for me because, as I said, I went from like being almost 90 every day to like zero constantly and having nothing to do and at first I was really happy like you know I have free time for the first time in like quite a while and I can do what I want but when as it got on I'm like and you're at home because you were not allowed to go out only one person in each household could go out so I was just stuck for like months inside the house and I really didn't know what to do um I think what they said at some point oh, we're going to come back in May. But then by May, it was already, the school year was going to be over, so it didn't make sense to start it again. And then they just said, okay, we might come back September. And that was it. And I guess we were like, okay, I guess we'll just have to wait it out. What were you doing with your time if there was not remote school available? Well, at the time, I was like, okay, I'll just try to go into my hobbies and kind of like stick with it. And yeah, you know, I study Japanese a lot. And yeah, these were hobbies, but I would say they felt very different because it felt like I was filling time intentionally to a point of like desperation that I just need to not think about everything that's happening outside of our house. And at some point, because my parents were out of jobs for an extended period of time, we were kind of grappling with finances. I fortunately got a job online. So I was working for this company, just content writing for them. It was a routine. It was a bad routine because I was sitting six, eight hours in my bed just typing, but it was still a routine. And it, I guess that's what filled up most of my time. So it sounds like there were real economic reasons that you going to work would make sense. And then you found this remote work opportunity, but that probably looked Nothing like what you imagined you'd be doing as a 19-year-old. Definitely not. I thought I'd be, you know, I'd be finishing up my thesis and celebrating because senior year for us was like really light because you kind of finished most of the things you have to finish in junior year. And I'd come into senior year just going out every day. But staying at home, being so isolated from all my friends, and sure, we did talk on social media 
and we managed like Zoom came out, Discord was very helpful. They just released their feature for videos at that time. So it we definitely all transferred there. But having that isolation when it was kind of like you've been waiting for this senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like, I don't even know if it's gonna happen, if we're ever gonna be able to do senior year, if online classes are possible. It was really it's really, really frustrating and overwhelming. Yeah, that reminds me of something Gray was mentioning earlier, just that, you know, there were all of these losses of rituals and sort of culturally important events and milestones and benchmarks, as well as disruption from hanging out with your friends and being out in the world and, and even your teachers, you know, coaches, neighbors, like other other adults as well. So it's a story of both isolation and a whole bunch of disruption and loss at a time when everyone else is also experiencing those things. So there's not much support or attention to it, right? That's what I'm hearing in each of your stories that you understood you were kind of losing things and things were scary, but it wasn't just happening to you. So there, there was sort of nothing to do but sit and watch it happen. How did you transition from this moment? I have a job. School doesn't exist anymore. Here I am sitting in the Philippines in this strange global moment to I'd like to go study at a liberal arts college in Vermont, United States. It was kind of a whirlwind and I didn't really, I never planned this because my mom is the most overprotective person ever. And she was, I when I like put forth the idea of Studying abroad in like 11th grade before the pandemic, she was like, why are you thinking of that? Just go for a master's. Like, that's way too early. And I'm like, well, you're right. Because no one, no one in our circles really did that. But then while I was working, I was like, let me take the SAT. Because Singapore is really near. And um, I had a lot of relatives there. So my first goal was obviously, okay, let's go for Singapore. So I took the SAT and I joined this mentorship group that helped people with applications abroad. And they just suggested, like, why don't you consider the U.S.? And I was like, okay, I'll just do it because I want to stay in this organization. And I want to, like, you know, I'd follow your advice. I trust you. Just kind of fell into place. It was a long journey, though. And I think most of my COVID pandemic life was revolving around college applications because I had to, I didn't get into anywhere in the U.S. the first year. And by that time, my mindset had already shifted to going to the U.S. Ah, you started to be interested in yeah, this I idea, started to right? Be really have feelings in, about it. Yeah. And I was like, I could see myself here better than uh, the Singapore school. So I was like, let me try one year again because it won't hurt because it's at this time, like when I got my results, it was like, April 2021 but things were still online in in the Philippines and it didn't make sense to go to school at that time just because like you're receiving an online education so it took a gap year then that's when I got into Middlebury and decided okay and did you come visit before you went or you just no, got on a plane okay no. yeah I got on a plane landed in August for the first time ever in my life like this is the first time I've traveled this far. Yeah. comes to Middlebury College in the fall of 2020, right at the height of the pandemic. Actually, before we even understood what the full scope and scale of the pandemic was going to be. And two years later, Mars and Rob, you arrive on campus. Different experiences. And yet, you all just spent your last school year, right, which is year three post-COVID at Middlebury on the same campus. And clearly working together this summer here with us at State Change. So what I hear in that is that, you know, there's some really different specific details to how this, you know, global crisis 
intersect with, with the launch moment of your life where you were supposed to go out into the world. But in each of your cases, I heard a couple of things. The first is that all of you really clearly were ready for an, an opportunity. You wanted to go and be doing more. You were ready for your life to get wider and bigger and for a thing to happen and to meet new people. And that is really developmentally right on target. And yet COVID and its subsequent impacts just created a, a whole bunch of real shift in what was possible and how it was going to look and what was even available, as well as a whole season of losses that all of us had in that first year in particular, but I think can't, comes in at this developmental stage with a different impact, right? So Gray, you talked about, uh, I was a senior in high school <laughs> when this happened, right? So we know that here in the United States, there's a ton of ritual and that goes through that. So speak a little bit about the losses of that first six months to a year that really changed your experience. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of expectation going in, like cultural expectation of what that time in high school and what that time in your life means that was just like never, never really realized. And more than anything for me, there was never really a sense of closure that was like capping off my experience in high school because it had been a long time and I had been going to school with the same people, same neighborhood, same group and teachers and system for so long. And then we lost connection with all of that. And there was really no reconnection after the pandemic because everybody spreads out. So in that moment, it would have been very necessary to have like a day, a ceremony, a graduation, a something that could bring everybody together and say like, just get recognition, but also just like personally, like understand the moment and then move on. But I think what COVID did to disrupt that with the lack of connection with the pandemic and everything was just like kind of create this weird in-between period where people are just drifting off and you're not hearing from people and like, that's that. I really see that, especially in your story and in the stories of other young people I know who were in that, that senior year, um, actually quite a few, who had a very similar sort of sense of like there's no period at the end of the sentence. Mars, how about you? What comes to mind when you think about like what you lost in that first year of the pandemic? I think for me, instead of being like a transitional moment away from high school, those first like one or two years were always hyped up to be the most important part of high school. And essentially it was like what we've been working up to the first two years of high school. And to have that be completely transformed was like weird and uncomfortable and confusing for everyone involved. Like the goalpost moved, the game yeah. changed in the middle of the game, right? The entire game changed. And instead of like coming into class and sort of doing the same thing we've been doing, but in a much more intense level and pace, it became this whole new environment of learning that we had to adjust to while also transferring to that intensity. As the three of you know, I care a lot about intergenerational conversations about everything to do with mental health or the pandemic and community resilience. And one of the reasons why is because it's very tricky for adults, especially folks say, you know, in midlife, so 35 and or older, to understand the impact of some of those losses, not that we can't see them at all, but because fundamentally, you know, we've had a lot more pivots in life and we have these adult brains. We have brains that operate um, with a plan B and a plan C. And even though all of us had losses, right, we all, I mean, many, many people suffered all kinds of change and, and loss. At the developmental stage that you were all at, those losses have a much bigger impact because your brains aren't yet full of ritual and roadmaps and meaning and memory, right? And they are looking to things like graduation ceremonies or for 
the social aspect of high school or college to be a certain way as markers, as, you know, lighthouses <laughs> to mark the way, like, I know I'm doing the right things. And that's a real culturally powerful thing that's been in place for thousands and thousands of years in human culture that for young people moving into adulthood, there are these rites of passage and these sort of cultural and community-based experiences that whatever they are, the details almost don't matter, right? But it does matter that they're there and they're how you make meeting and how you connect to each other. And I really hear in this that there was a lot of that loss. I'm not sure adults always get that. Rob, what are some of the things that come to mind when you think about that time locked at home that you lost? I'm not sure I would frame it as loss, but more like dealing with stuff that I had put aside for so long. And, uh -huh. and one of them was like my relationship with my family. And here I was stuck in the house every single day. And probably in this time period, I've spent more time with them. And I guess in order to tolerate that kind of environment, I had to. We all had to because we all had we were all part of this kind of like situation that we were. We just kind of set aside this whole time. We all had to try and work out like the issues that we've been having for a long time. And personally, one of them was my anxiety, which I didn't really know was anxiety at the time. And I then like looking back when I when my parents really convinced me to like seek help. Then I looked back and at the time before the pandemic and said, oh, that was already definitely there. So that pandemic really made me confront all those things. That so I you ha had some time, space, and relationship opportunities to learn some things, do some growing, and face some things. But it was definitely difficult uh, uh, under the strained circumstances. But I, I guess like it was like a silver lining that that was the time that those had to come out and those that had to be solved at that specific moment. Because if not, the experience of being in the pandemic would have been much worse. I like that resilient framing of this. Silver lining thinking is valuable and, and especially in this case, right, it's an opportunity to tend that anxiety. Let's talk a little bit about life on campus. One thing I've learned from each of you is that there's a general sense among your peers and classmates that campus life just isn't what it was before the pandemic. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, I guess none of us can really attest to what campus was like prior to the pandemic. So everything that we have to say is based on expectations and stories from upperclassmen and people we met and more or less like promotional stuff that the college sends out. Um, but there's definitely, I don't know. I, I feel like we're definitely regaining some steam in some aspects, but also falling back in different areas. But there's overall just like a loss of life and organized events and more of a community atmosphere that I feel like should be there and was there in the past. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a more like public events, programming, things that regularly happen on campus for the entire community rather than like private gatherings and parties and stuff like that are missing. I don't know how present they were prior to the pandemic. Like Grace said, we don't really have that much info on that. But I do feel like that's something that lacks socially. Everything's perfect here. Everything's nicer. Everything's more social. And I was just, at first, really glad to be in that kind of environment. But as Gray was pointing out, as time went on, I felt these changes. And I feel like they were happening at real time. For example, the staffing issue. And I, as a student worker, I could definitely feel that in some aspects because we'd have to be covering for some service that the library has just lost staff for or some supervisor was moving to the town over because they couldn't afford rent anymore. And you just saw like dining hours um, shortening. The grill was like, which is a midnight place. But yeah, talking to seniors, talking to people who even have experienced a little bit of that life before the pandemic, it was there. 
but the general like attitude and the spirit because everyone came most of the people now came in during the pandemic they don't have that frame of reference to go back to right. to restore that previous state yeah you all don't know this but I know s students who attend lots of different kinds of schools of various size and various locations. And this is a common thing that I'm hearing that the there's a lack of sort of vitality and ac activeness that they were hopeful for in college and, and that they suspect was there before. And any listeners who are over 25 years old and attended college know that it was there before. And it was there in all kinds of different ways that we can hear this is really a stark difference. So I heard you connect some important dots there, Rob, with, you know, there's a staffing and workforce shortage and that impacts higher education just like anything else. And that in a place that's a small liberal arts college, that makes a really tangible, concrete, on-the-ground difference in things like where are our spaces to gather, where we can go get food, who's out and about in the evening, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah, I think definitely... The staffing issue is huge. And nowadays we're seeing the consequences of that. It's also just like, to me, the biggest thing is just the learned sense of isolation and just depending on yourself for anything. And rather than a more communal approach, just having the perspective of coming in during COVID and having everybody forced to be living by themselves and working by themselves and quarantined all the time coming off of the pandemic as well. Like people learned different ways of coping with mental health issues, of interacting with like life through social media and stuff that is definitely stuck around and kind of like pervaded through the last couple of years after the pandemic settled down. And it's also kind of controlled the way that like I feel the social scene works as well because the way things started were you can't branch out there aren't communal events. There aren't big places right. to hang out. So you can make friends, but it's going to be a very small circle. You said something there I think is really important. Um, and I'm going to speak a little bit. You know I love to talk about the neuroscience of this. But you said there's a little bit of like a learned uh, hyper-autonomy and a exactly. learned isolation. And, and that's very real. So first of all, anytime something comes in as a big sort of traumatic shift in life, like COVID was for all of us, having to even think about who we're breathing on or standing near was a new thing, right? We hadn't had to even worry about this uh, in modern life, really. That created both a big fear pattern in our memory and in our nervous system, right? That like associated all the things we learned as being important to pay attention to because these have high stakes. So things like, being asked to stay in those rooms with just your roommates and quarantine and all of that. Uh, the good news is you all complied with that. So from a public health standpoint, that's great. But it also means that your brain wired that in as part of like a survival behavior that it wants to keep paying attention to, right? And so it'll sort of just be loud in there, even when consciously you know that the conditions have changed, right? Like the instinct or even just the habits of going and dealing with things by yourself or just sort of uh, being in your room and your study patterns, all of that developed around a risk profile and a bunch of protocols that we've now moved to the side and yet they're imprinted in us. So that's very real. I also suspect that an element of this is just the impact on the adults on campus, right? On your faculty and advisors and staff and the many different ways that the pandemic has stressed and overwhelmed them over this three years of time. I think a lot of faculty are also quite burnt out as a combination of like COVID and other factors. And it sort of becomes this feedback loop of students constantly being like burnt out and sort of trying to adjust to this post-COVID educational environment and context and faculty also being burnt out from like 
different reasons and COVID sort of informing that relationship. Right. Like everyone has that empty gas tank type of sort of depletion and burnout and, and low grade depression that we've we've talked about this summer is, is a common profile right now. And it does it. it it's, you know, if part of a community or even a family system has really good resources and good energy and is feeling good, that can buoy those of us who are dragging or struggling a bit, right? But when in our collective, we all don't have quite enough to, to get a, <laughs> to manage everything, we're not quite upright consistently or we don't have extra to give, it impacts the entire community because there's not a lot of shoring each other up there's not a lot of extra anything to go around so what are some of the things that you see yourselves your friends and your peers doing to support yourselves in this environment that feels less healthy and vital and expansive and positive than you might have hoped your college experience would feel Rob, I heard you mentioned that for yourself, you started doing things like yoga. I did, but because of my living situation, I wasn't really able to keep it up. But it was helpful that the college does have a yoga club. And these are students, but they're also certified instructors. So I would invite some of my friends to go. And we didn't always go every week, but whenever we can. We would go. And I guess like in many ways, like a lot of um, students at Middlebury would um, arrange our own like little picnic outside or when it was winter, like just, you know, watch a movie together at a random classroom in Axon or something. Yeah, definitely through the pandemic, I started depending way more on physical activity and just physically being outside. In the thick of the pandemic, I was like lucky enough to be able to be super close to the Adirondack State Park. And like I spent, I was working like three or four days a week and I would spend the other three days of my week just like out backpacking like every single week. That was my routine. And that's definitely something I've carried back to mid and I've just prioritized like me spending time with friends alone with whoever I want, just like outside running, walking, going out on backpacking trips has definitely been like a huge part of like me getting a balance of like work and stress relief and everything and having a good good cycle at school so for me i think the most important thing has been intentionally creating like downtime for myself because i got like very severely burnt out during the pandemic and that forced me to it made me realize that I either have to make myself take breaks, have downtime, and enjoy myself, separate work from life, or my body's gonna shut me down and force me out of that workspace, even if I have something that I need to work on and something that's urgent. So I've gotten better at creating that time and creating that space for myself. And this past year, it's mostly been like getting back into art, starting embroidery and a bunch of other things that I enjoy, but never really gave myself the chance to explore further when they were all tangled up. I really appreciate that you're going back to this campus this fall with you know, all of this learning and work we've done this summer and a renewed connection to where do we start these conversations and what do we do next to shift this for students? Epic work, basically. Love it. Okay, thanks, everyone. Well, thank blah, you. Blah, blah, blah. Thank outro, you. outro, yada, yada. I know, you guys do.
The conversation you just heard was recorded four months ago, in August 2023, at the end of the internship summer after Gray, Mars, and Rob had done a lot of research and personal reflection on mental health that informed what they shared. I remember leaving the studio feeling so hopeful and encouraged by their wisdom, the resilience and passion of these young people who my team and I care a great deal about and are very personally connected to and invested in. In the four months since we recorded these interviews, our students and the Middlebury College community have experienced two sudden student deaths on campus this fall, one of those a very close friend of one of our international students. They were rocked by these losses on their small campus, as were their peers and their faculty, staff, and the larger Middlebury community. Middlebury students and all of us living here in Vermont were stunned and devastated just 10 days ago when three 20-year-old Palestinian college students visiting family here in Burlington, Vermont for Thanksgiving break were shot by a 48-year-old white man, a stranger they had never seen before, in an apparent hate crime as they walked down a residential street. The uncle who was hosting these students here in Burlington was a Middlebury classmate of mine from 25 years ago. And this shooting happened on a street in a campus-adjacent neighborhood that my family, our state change media team, and thousands of college students walked daily. When we checked in with our students to see if they were okay and how to support them, they explicitly stated how dangerous and triggering it feels right now just to be existing in a non-white, non-American body walking around in the same region where this identity-based gun violence just happened. The most important thing I can say as a career specialist in youth and young adult mental health about this moment for young people is that their fear and distress is not a pathology, nor is it a mental health disorder. It's an appropriate response to the very real risks to their physical and psychological safety and to the larger sense that the world is not safe or okay. What those of us who have committed our lives to working with teens and young people are desperate for you all to know about the youth and young adult mental health crisis is that it is not a mystery why our young people are collapsing, frozen, shut down, acting out, or in other ways struggling. This is the scientific outcome of their lived experience in today's world. These young people are grappling with very real stress, fear, uncertainty, risk, and a very reasonable lack of trust that the adults on the planet have things handled. Because we don't, and they can see it. At a population level, adults have been flattened by the ocean of stress, loss, fear, disruption, and isolation of the pandemic, as well as by the polarized, painful, and uncertain sociopolitical state of our nation. The economy is crushing families, and even adults who have their needs met are not generally operating in our most resourced, available mode a great deal of the time. While none of us planned or expected COVID and the global collapse of the adult world as we knew it, it is time to acknowledge that our young people in particular have been destabilized by it in a specific way. Their lives were upended, then suspended in time, while the world itself seemed on fire and all the adults they knew were busy holding up the sky. Then they launched out into a world where their parents, neighbors, employers, teachers, faculty, coaches, and other support people are struggling ourselves to come out from under our own circumstances and responsibilities, and often struggling with our own mental health. College campuses are working fervently to solve issues like the loss of vitality, social connection, and sense of community on post-pandemic campus life. But if the solutions to any mental health and community connection crisis were easy, this would already look different. Everyone I know working in higher education at Middlebury and in other places report their campus grappling with the same challenges and a deep core commitment to trying to best meet the needs of students as well as faculty and staff as assertively as possible in what feels like a nearly unrecognizable new educational and social emotional reality. Writer and podcaster Glennon Doyle frequently reminds us that there is no such thing as other people's children. And I'm going to say here, there's also no such thing as other people's young adults. The truth is that transforming the youth and young adult mental health crisis requires all of us, all adults, everywhere, to turn and really look at the young people in our community, in our daily lives. We have outsourced a lot of their education and support to technology and media in recent years 
And we've left them to self-occupy and self-solve and self-soothe, largely because we really haven't had a lot of other choices. But we do have more choices right now about our time, energy, and focus. And with the death and gun violence right at their door, today's college students need us to plug in with them, and they need it now. Campuses, families, counselors, and educators are already years into a full-court press for our youth, and it's not enough. We need all hands on deck. If you're in the position to lean into connection with a young adult you know, or with teens and young adults more generally in your community, there is an urgent need, and now is the time. If you're not in that position, look for ways to resource and support the people who are. The faculty and staff, coaches, employers, teachers, care providers, and family members who are holding these young people day in and day out. The best part of this is, as good as relationships with supportive adults are for young people, these intergenerational relationships are equally, if not more, healing and valuable to us. This is a solution for everyone's isolation, for everyone's loss of vitality, and for everyone's need to feel more connection and belonging. These students remind us to be curious, to be brave, to be agile thinkers with open minds, to be joyful and have fun, to center friendships, to center connection and community in our daily lives. Today's teens and young adults deserve to feel safe on their campuses and in their communities. They deserve a connected, hopeful future. And we adults are the key to both. It's time to lean in. Thanks for listening. The State Change Podcast is a production of State Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont, on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis. Our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard. And I'm executive producer and host, Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability. And to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax in Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Hapeman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukander, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury College's Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or healthcare provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.